What'd you think of chapter one? Uh, kind of like review at the first part. It is, right? It, it should be, right? There should be some words that you recognize in there and some concepts you might recognize from high school, right? Or some other science class that you had, which is good, right? You did learn some things when you were in a high school science class, okay? The first chapters of textbooks are always kind of hard to read. And uh, having tried to write some of these things myself successfully or not, I'm not sure. They can be very hard to write as well. What's the objective of the first chapter of a textbook? A summary? Right, a summary of concepts of the kind of things that you're gonna be doing for the other 55 chapters in the textbook, right? Uh, so it's a bit scattered. You know, it was about a, a couple of paragraphs about this, and then Camel's gonna talk for a couple of paragraphs about something completely different, and then he says something completely different, right? Um, rest assured, don't let that dissuade you. The rest of the book is not that way, okay? Once you get past chapter one and those uh, strange introductory chapters, things will be a lot more cohesive and contained, right? This first chapter of the book, though, is pretty much telling you all the kinds of things they're going to tell you. We take the military approach. Anybody? Military? We, we tell you what we're going to tell you, and then we tell you, right? And at the end, we're going to tell you what we told you, okay? So you get it three times, right? So this first chapter is telling you what we're going to tell you, okay? We're going to talk about things uh, like we were talking about last time, where your energy and your carbon comes from, right? Um, how some organisms have invented the process of converting electromagnetic radiation into chemical bond energy. We call them plants, right? Using chloroplasts and things like that. We'll talk about things like aerobic respiration and anaerobic respiration, you know, processes that you do to convert energy, okay? We'll talk about things like how to make two cells out of one, okay? Cellular division and things like that, mitosis, and even the process of making gametes. Let's say after you graduate from college and you get a job, you decide to have children, okay? Um, you need to make some gametes. You need to take cells with 46 chromosomes and make cells with 23 chromosomes out of them and fuse them with somebody else's. Is that a complex and complicated process? It kind of is. A lot of people do it, right? We work it out, don't we, don't we, right? But there's some sorting out of materials that has to happen there, right? You need to take some chromosomes and move some things around, okay? Um, so there are some complex processes there. Um, if all goes as planned, what we're gonna be talking about after that is actually the genetics of a population. Not just looking at what happens within you as an individual, but looking at what a population of organisms does uh, as they work together. Okay, as a population, swapping genes back and forth with each other and things like that, okay? But first we need to talk about uh, more of these properties of life and more of these properties of living systems, okay? When we were last uh, talking about biology, we were going through this list of, of what actually a living system is. And we were talking primarily about living systems um, as integrated parts, okay? Different organisms interacting with each other. Uh, which we call atrophic interaction. Um, anybody eat anything for lunch today? What'd you have? You had a Subway sandwich? You trophically interacted with a Subway sandwich, right? It is biological code for eating something, okay, or someone, okay? Uh, later on, I'm gonna trophically interact with a orange, right? Or a chicken maybe even, okay? Um, and these trophic interactions, right, are, are essentially this process of energy and carbon going from one organism into another, okay? Um, and oftentimes when you take these biology classes, we talk about plants and we talk about birds and we talk about bacteria and viruses and things like that. And somehow, because you're human, okay, with opposable thumbs and forward-facing vision and a big brain, you think that you're some, somehow outside of this process, okay, of, of life on Earth. And you're very much not outside of that, okay? You do the exact same things as all those other organisms do. You just make it a slightly more elegant process. Sometimes you make it a slightly more elegant process, right? Let's, let's say we're more, we're more elegant than this, aren't we? My students wouldn't uh, degrade themselves to the hot dog eating contest, would they? No, they wouldn't, right? We'd like to keep it nice and elegant, all right? We can look at entire ecosystems. Okay, and not just looking at one organism eating another, but looking at how all of the carbon and how all of the energy is flowing through an ecosystem. Okay, uh, when we do this, we call each one of these things a food web. Okay, and a food web is constructed from independent food chains that are interacting with each other. Okay, so here the sun is coming in, 
Um, and the plants are creating glucose out of it, making these nice big high energy carbohydrates out of it. The cows are eating the grass. Um, some of the grass just dies and falls over and gets decomposed into basic organic matter by things like bacteria and fungi. Okay, some of it will go in, here's the fungi over here, here's some nematodes, they might be eating some of it. The arthropods eat the nematode, the songbird eats the arthropod, the higher predators eat the songbird, right? Um, so this diagram, if it's complete, will show all of the individuals within a food web, and the arrows represent a trophic interaction. Okay, they represent how energy is flowing through this ecosystem and how nutrients are recycling within this ecosystem, okay? So energy is flowing from the plant to the grazing mammal, okay? And the carbon is as well. When you actually start doing this in the non-cartoon version, a thing, okay, things get pretty complicated pretty quickly, all right? Um, so here is a not entirely complete, but pretty thorough depiction of a Scottish loch. Okay, you know the uh, Scottish Loch? If you watch the Harry Potter movies, right, the lake outside of, of Hogwarts is a loch. Big, long, straight, uh, big string uh, lakes. They're not called locks. That's what you do to keep a door closed. Okay, it's actually pronounced loch. That's an H on the end, right? Um, and likewise, just like with the cartoony example, you can see the arrows in here, and the arrows represent where the energy is going. Who is, Udi, who, who is eating who, right? Energy and carbon is going out of the phytoplankton and into the mussels in this case, they're filter feeding out of the water, right? And those phytoplankton are being taken in by the muscles and consumed, okay? So the muscle can use that energy and that carbon to grow and make more baby muscles. Yes? Yes. Everybody else, yes? yes. Good, 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 good. Um, being a paleontologist, uh, I like to look at the history of living systems. Okay, uh, just so you know, this uh, rock here is about 250, 300 million years old, um, squarely from the middle of the United States. And so just like in my earlier example from that rock from Nevada that I showed you on the first day, you've just learned something about the center of the United States, right? Again, it used to be underwater, right? The earth changes in time and space, as you know. Um, and here we actually have a part anyway of an ecosystem, not all of it, Okay, but the part of it that has hard, durable skeletons that can fossilize anyway, we can see some things in here we can recognize. This looks kind of oystery. Okay, looks like something you might be able to recognize. Um, this, you might not be able to recognize this. These are called bryozoans. Um, it's an animal, but it's a colonial branching animal. They're really, really small. There's little pores in this structure that these little individual organisms live inside of. Um, there's some other elements in here of echinoderms, things that are related to starfish things like that. Um, and if they're all in the same rock, okay, and we can get the age of the rock, we can actually make some statements about what organisms in the past are living with each other and possibly trading energy and carbon with each other, okay? Using specimens like this, we can actually start making statements about ancient food webs, not just modern ones, and seeing how food webs have changed through times. Are they more complex today than they were in the past? Or are they more simple today than they were in the past, right? Complexity of food webs has changed through times, okay? Interestingly enough, as an aside, it looks like some of the biggest mass extinctions in Earth history were ones where the bottom of the food web was undercut. You start killing off the primary producers, shutting down the amount of energy that can flow upwards throughout the food web and upwards throughout the food chains. So that probably should surprise you very much. If you lose your photosynthesizers, very, very bad things are eventually going to happen. Can you stand outside and get energy from the sun that you can use biologically? Are you green? You are not green, right? You can't do those kinds of things. Uh, you, haven't, uh, you haven't invented that reaction, okay? So you're relying on other organisms out there to do that for you, right? And consuming it, right? This basic, how do we get biologically useful energy onto the earth, okay, uh, for animals, uh, we're outsourcing. Okay, uh, we're relying on the plants to do those kind of things. Okay, what we as animals are limited to doing, right, uh, we're limited to only being able to convert as much energy as has been captured by the plants and passed on to us. Okay, so the plants are dictating how much biologically useful energy is actually coming into the earth that's available to us animals who eat them. Okay? Good? So you have a place, okay? You, you have a place in this trophic web, right? And to think that you don't um, is to be a little arrogant, a little short-sighted, right? A little homocentric, all those kinds of words that we like to, like to be. 
If we look at the history of life through time, as we know it from the fossil record anyway, it looks like this. Okay, if we actually use this kind of fossil evidence to try to make statements about what life through time actually looks like, what is the pattern of diversity through time, we're not using species, we're using genera. The next level up in that Linnaean hierarchy, okay, you know, species together make up genera, individual, or the singular, the genus, okay, we're in the genus homo, right? Yes? You've heard that before. Good. Okay, um, you can see some interesting, interesting things from the start. I'm not paying too much attention to the different colors. They mean other more complex things that we'll talk about in Biology 102. Yes? yes. Good. This is my used car salesman pitch for Biology 102 again, right? But you can see some interesting things on here. This is the Cambrian explosion, which you may have heard of before, about 540, give or take, million years ago. Okay? Different from the Big Bang, a Big Bang of diversity, right? Um, uh, not geologically speaking, not too long ago. The Earth is about four and a half billion years old, right? So we're only talking about 550, give or take, million, with an M, years ago. So geologically, not too long ago. Um, life took off pretty rapidly after, the, after animals invented skeletonization. That's more than anything else what we think this is, right? This is when animals started to making hard, durable parts that preserve in the fossil record, okay? There probably was an actual increase in biodiversity that happened accordingly with that, right? But a big part of the Cambrian explosion as we know it is the invention of hard parts, okay? And the fossil record gets really, really good and complete after that. What do you think the fossil record of earthworms look like? Lousy, right? How do you fossilize an earthworm anyway? You know, so uh, we have a very good fossil record of things that make hard parts, like teeth and shells and stuff like that. And that's what this seems to be, the evolution of hard parts. And that changes everything. Everything gets really complex after that. Uh, a little bit, we get to this point, not too long after the Cambrian explosion, and what happens? Things just kind of twiddle around for a while, don't they? Right? Um, life just kind of starts to phone it in for about 200 million years. Not too much going on, nothing new really evolving, right? Just kind of ecosystem going on, plotting through time, nothing too extraordinary happening, okay? Sure, there's little wiggles in it. You get mass extinctions that occasionally where bad things happen to perfectly good species. There's recoveries afterwards though, everything is fine. Uh, and then something extraordinarily bad happens right here, okay? This is the Permatriassic extinction. All right, uh, estimates currently saying 95, give or take, percent of all species on the Earth dying. Okay, um, not everything died, some things made it through just fine. How do we know? We're here, aren't we? Okay, so some things did make it through. All right, um, and then life recovers, okay, and it goes up. And very quickly, life actually recovers the diversity that it had before, and it hasn't stopped since. Okay, we think, geologically speaking anyway, currently, the Earth is as full as it has ever been with different species, okay? It seems to be jam-packed, okay? There's a lot of species on the Earth, more it seems today than has ever existed in Earth history. Of course, and this conversation broke out in my earlier Biology 101 class that met at 6.30 this morning, right? Um, that we, we're doing a very good job of changing that. Okay, uh, we drive things to extinction all the time. Okay, so maybe 100 years ago, life, right before the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, life on Earth was as diverse as it has ever been, and it's been going down quickly since then, right? Um, but uh, it makes you ask compelling questions. If you think about life on Earth as uh, energy converters and carbon swappers, okay, acting in communities with trophic interactions, food chains comprising food webs, and things like that, why, what happened here Okay, that is different from this. Okay, are communities different here than they were here? If you look at the fossil record, the answer is, oh yes, they are. Okay, back here we have organisms dominated by these kinds of critters. Okay, um, some of these things you recognize, you can see some mollusks in here, but a lot of the organisms we just don't see on Earth today. Trilobites are gone and they're not coming back, right? When we look at this community over here, it's dominated by the things that you see on the beach. Mollusks with shells, warm-blooded, large chordates like mammals and birds, things like that, okay? This is essentially when the modern fauna that we see outside appeared on the earth for the first time, okay? It looks like if we have a community based on the things that we see outside today, the earth composed of those individual species can be a lot more dense okay, in terms of the number of the species, than the kind of organisms that made up communities over here. If you build a community that is converting energy and swapping nutrients out of these kind of things, you can only fit this many, 
right? But if you make it out of these kind of things, you can fit a lot more, right? So communities do change through time, right? And there are implications in terms of how many species you can actually fit on the earth with respect to that. Compelling? Absolutely, the fossil record does actually have some pretty good information in it, right? It's not just a badly preserved trampled bone that you occasionally pull out of the ground. Sometimes you do get communities and you can learn a lot from them. Okay, so what biology is, right, to end up from where we were talking about last time, it's the study of living systems. If you recall when I was talking about what biology is, we started with the study of life, which is philosophy, right? We can go outside and sit under a tree and wax on about what life is, okay? And that's not necessarily what science does, okay? Science isn't something that you sit around outside and talk about, right? Science is something that you actually do. So we wanna think about life not from the philosophical point of view in terms of defining what life is. We wanna think about it from the pragmatic point of view, okay? What does science tell us about life, okay? So what is life? Science doesn't have an answer for that. Okay, what are the properties of living systems? Okay, and what do living systems comprise? Science can help us out there. Okay, those are better questions for the scientist than what is life? What is life is great for philosophy. That's down the hallway, okay? Uh, science in here, we wanna talk about pragmatic things. So we, if we wanna talk about the chemical properties of living systems, can science help us out there? That's a question we can answer, right? What are the chemical properties of living systems? Easy, carbon? Oxygen, nitrogen, and hydrogen, okay? Those are the beginnings anyway of the, re the reductionist beginnings, right, of the chemical properties of living systems. If we do that, we're talking about biochemistry, one of the flavors of chemistry that Campbell will tell you about undoubtedly in chapter one. Um, if we wanna think about these interaction of parts of living systems like we just were, okay, we can call ourselves ecologists. If we wanna talk about the interaction of parts of living systems in the past, we could even go so far as to combine and call ourselves paleoecologists. If we just wanna think about life in general, as I do, in the historical sense, we would call ourselves perhaps a paleobiologist. All right, so biology is big. It's so big that it's almost silly to think that we can give you an adequate biology education in 16 weeks, right? Which is why this class is called introduction, right, to biology. So I need to introduce biology to you, okay? Um, and if I'm gonna do that adequately in 16 weeks, I kinda have to give you a bit of an overview. But I really have to spend a lot of my time thinking about if I only have 16 weeks to teach you something useful about biology, what am I gonna talk about, okay? And I'm gonna, again, like I said last time, I'm gonna focus in this class on how do you get your energy, where do you get your carbon, and what do you do with it, okay? Everything else is details. 16 weeks worth of details, sometimes fine, sometimes kind of gross, right? But 16 weeks of details nonetheless, okay? But everything that we talk about in here is, where do I get my energy? Where do I get my carbon? And what can I do with it? And how? I mean, there are details about problems to solve, okay? If I'm gonna be an endotherm, uh, it's gonna be a lot more expensive, okay? I'm gonna require 2,000 calories a day as opposed to 200, as if I were a turtle or something like that. So I got a big problem. I gotta get a lot more energy and I need to get a lot more carbon. How do I do that, okay? I have to be uh, thinking about things all the time and I need to be fast, I need to be able to chase things down and I need to be able to uh, interact more integrated with my environment to find out what a good food item looks like and things like that. So are these consequences, right, and complexities that arise. Let's say that I wanna start flying around. Maybe I wanna be a marine mammal, right? All these things, right, that, that has given us this great diversity of life on Earth all has, is kind of hamstrung by these same problems of where do I get my energy, right? Where do I get my carbon and what can I do with it? Okay, so those are the questions that we're gonna be asking for plants, animals, fungi, bacteria. Is a virus even alive in the first place, right? All these are questions that we'll end up talking about. And we do it using the scientific method, okay? Um, have you done this before? Have you done the scientific method? Have you engaged in that? Everybody, raise your hand. You've been doing it since you were two years old. Yes? You've been doing it without thinking about it. You know, you do it every day. You don't call it science. If you did, you would get bored by it. So let's just not think about that for a second, right? Uh, but yes, you've been doing it all your life. That's how you actually know things, okay? Um, if we wanna try to somewhat artificially uh, break science down into a couple of different uh, categories, we can call one of the flavors of it discovery science. 
okay? Um, usually when we think of discovery science, we think of Victorian naturalists walking around the lake, sipping tea and waxing on about the lovely diversity of life that is to be found in the reeds by the lake, okay? Um, and this writing, which is common throughout Victorian England, is very, very interesting, yet it's also horribly, horribly boring. Right? If you'd ever like to uh, find a cure for insomnia, pick up a science book from the 1800s and read it, and you'll be out in about five minutes. Okay? So not a lot of excitement there, but it is very good and very useful. Right? It's descriptive. Somebody actually going out there and looking at something and describing it in detail for the first time. That's oftentimes where things start. We still have a lot of this discovery science going on today. Um, the picture here is of Jane Goodall. You know who Jane Goodall is in the anthropology? She did. She did. Um, she lit I would say that you're absolutely right. She, this lady lived with chimps, right, for a long time, 20 years, 25 years, okay? Um, and she spent her life observing uh, a colony, troop, if you will, of chimpanzees and taking extraordinarily uh, complex and diverse amounts of notes, okay? Very complete note taker here, um, with the hopes that if she could learn as much as she could about the chimpanzees that she was observing, she could actually extrapolate out and apply that information to chimps as a whole, okay? Um, other examples of discovery science that are currently ongoing today, um, cell structure, you know, once uh, Lewin Hook invented the microscope, we started to find out that there were things below the level that we could actually see with the naked eye, right? Describing the cell for the first, I mean, today we want to think about how a cell works and how does it function with cellular biochemistry and molecular genetics and all that kind of stuff. The first thing that we have to do is describe what a cell is in the first place and what are the parts, okay? So science oftentimes begins with discovery. Um, genomes, the Human Genome Project is an excellent example okay, of, uh, of this discovery science. And when you uh, undergo some research with the Human Genome Project, what do you end up with? Stack of paper about that thick of three billion A's, T's, C's, and G's. Okay, that is your genome. Have you learned anything? might have learned something. How many A's do you have? How many C's? How many T's? How many G's? Things like that. You've discovered how long is the human genome, how many nucleotides does it comprise, all this kind of stuff, right? If I took two, two genomes from humans and compared it to each other, I would then probably know more how much variation is there in the human genome, right? But we're not testing really any hypotheses here, right? We're really just kind of looking at things and appreciating what is the basic structure of, of, of this living system in the first place, right? If you want to think of more cool and expensive discovery science, you can think of the Hubble Space Telescope, right? Um, we're not really testing too many hypotheses by just taking a, a, a really nice telescope in space and taking pictures everywhere. We can use those pictures to test hypotheses, but it's discovery on its purest form. What do the heavens look like, right? Let's get the best telescope we can, shoot it into space, and start taking a lot of pictures. That's nothing more than discovery from the first, uh, from the first outset, okay? So even though, right, it predates this hypothesis testing uh, kind of science, um, it still goes on, and it's all very, very useful. When we use this discovery science, oftentimes uh, we are relying, like I was talking about earlier, on the process of induction, okay? Um, we are going to look at some things very, very closely and induce outwards from that to apply it to larger groups as a whole. Let's say that I wanna know about biology students at uh, Nova Annandale. One of the things that I can do is give you 16 weeks worth of, of lecture and exams and lab classes and all that kind of stuff, right? And I'll know something about you, and hopefully I can induce, okay, that information outward to other biology students at Nova Annandale, okay? Like Jane Goodall was doing with the chimpanzees, like the Hubble Space Telescope is doing with galaxies and things like that, okay? So this process of induction, you generalize based on a lot of specific examples, okay? If I want to know something about humans on Earth, I can look at a small sample of them very, very completely and try to generalize, hopefully generalize, okay, uh, as much as I can. However, the other flavor of science, right, we refer to as the hypothesis-based science. This is where we're testing hypotheses, all right? Um, a hypothesis is nothing more than a speculative statement, okay, a hypothetical explanation. If you've ever played Clue before, Clue, the game Clue? You've played Clue. Do you generate hypotheses in the game of Clue? Absolutely do. For example, Colonel Mustard did it in the library with a candlestick. Okay, that's a very good hypothesis. And you test it. 
How do you test that hypothesis? Yeah, you, you, well, you collect as much data as you can, right, from others, and then you pick up the, the deck of cards and you open it up and, and somebody shows it to you and you've either won or, you, or you've lost, right? Um, there's no, I got it wrong and I can be okay, right? If you, if you get it wrong, you know the answer then and, and you're out, right? Um, but that's a perfectly adequate hypothesis which gets tested, okay? Goodness sake, science can even be fun, right? Yes? yes. Anybody into legal things, law school, thinking about being a lawyer or no one, anything like that? Lawyers test hypotheses all the time, right? Um, that's what happens in court, okay? You have a statement about someone. J'accuse, you are guilty of something awful, whatever it may be, right? And we want to test that. How do we test that? We gather evidence, okay? The evidence can either speak to that, in which case you are guilty as charged, or it exonerates you in which case you are innocent, okay? That is a test of a hypothesis as well, okay? Um, so that's the way that it is, right? Uh, you either undergo this discovery-based science or you do this hypothesis-based science, right? Both of them, okay, are relying on observations and data collection and things like that. Now, uh, we're talking about tentative answers to well-framed questions. Ultimately, all of this starts with a question. Who killed whoever it is in Clue, right? Or who shot this guy, which you may or may not currently be on trial for? Probably not, because they're a nice guy, right? Um, but what this hypothesis is, Colonel Mustard in the library with a candlestick, is not the answer. It is a possible answer, and then you test that to see whether or not this possible answer, right, is one that you're going to keep. Okay, so we're talking about, in courtroom jargon, explanations on trial, okay, requiring evidence, and the evidence either speaks to that or not. What the evidence speaks to, okay, in the science realm anyway, we say that we know. What your textbook is, okay, it's a collection of all the biological hypotheses that have not been rejected, assembled all in one place for you, for your reading pleasure. Yes? Are there hypotheses on the trash bin of history? Oh, yes, there are. The perfect example of a good hypothesis that is on the trash heap of history, biologically speaking, giraffes have long necks so they can reach the leaves in the top of the tree. Anybody heard that before? That is a hypothesis that is in the trash bin of history, right? That is not why giraffes have long necks, okay? Uh, any of you still think that? That's fine if you do. For, that's what I was taught when I was a kid. Well, giraffes, well, that's so they can reach the top of the leaves and the top of the tree. That's what your mother told you anyway, right? And she's a good scientist, yes, <laughs> right? Um, we, can, uh, we can think about how reasonable that is just from the outset. Let's say that we have uh, something that you want, okay? And we're gonna attach it up here to the wall, right there, okay? A little bit out of your reach. For the next 50 years, well, we don't even have to go that far. Let's say for the next 10 years, we're gonna have you every day come over here and you're gonna stretch and you're gonna to try to reach for that thing. Okay? Yes? No, you're not gonna do that. We could though, we could, and you would because you're all into science, right? Um, if you did that for 10 years, would your child have a very long left arm? Would your stretching influence the shape of your baby? No, it would not at all. So why, do you, why would it for a giraffe? Seriously, why would it for a giraffe? It wouldn't, right? When, you, when I talk about it with you, it's comical, right? But oh yeah, giraffes have long necks so they can reach the leaves in the top of the tree. So they're gonna spend their life stretching for these things and their babies are gonna have, doesn't work that way, right? That doesn't mean that giraffes don't have long necks, they obviously do, right? The long neck come from somewhere, right? Um, if you looked at a giraffe closely, carefully looked at a giraffe, what's on the top of its head? Yeah, they do have a little, well, not a little, right? They're little because they're far away. They're actually pretty big. They're 18 feet up there, so they look kind of small, right? Uh, they're called ossicones, right? Um, it's, uh, for all practical purposes, it's a functional horn, right? They're not sharp, right? But they are big and bony, right? And you can do some serious damage with them. If you ever look at uh, giraffes in the wild, quote unquote, two male giraffes uh, vying for females, what do they do? Anybody watch National Geographic? Yeah, they swing their heads at each other, right? They engage in all of those. Any, any big mammal that has horns engage in similar behaviors, right? Um, humans do it too, 
right? You go to a shopping mall on a Friday night and you can see males swinging their figurative heads at each other vying for females, right? Yes? Take a sociology class. We do it too. We just don't do it with horns, okay? I'm going to get a eight-cylinder Mustang with lousy mileage and a loud muffler, right? And the women will really like that. Don't tell me we don't know about these things. I know we all do, right? You've been to high school, right? Um, so these males are swinging their heads at each other. Who do you think wins? Who gets to mate? The males that can get the bigger swing that win in those interactions, right? And those males are the ones with the longer necks, okay? So it turns out being some big mate choice experiment um, gone to a freakish extreme, okay? Like, hopefully we don't start doing that because then we'll, you know, get really, really long necks, you know? Um, and nothing to do with leaves, nothing to do with eating, nothing to do with needing to get leaves on the top of the tree, right? Um, if the only people in this room who get to mate are the ones that have long necks, will the next generation of humans from this room have long necks? They certainly might. Right? Or we can sit here and all stretch our necks as much as we can, right? And that won't have any bearing whatsoever, however, on the next generation. Okay? There's no genetic component there. Okay? So, explanations on trial. We can use this giraffe example and we can test it. Okay? We can have you stretch up there for the rest of your life if you want, and this will have no bearing on your baby. In fact, it will probably prevent you from having one because you'll spend all your time reaching for this thing in the side of the room instead of undergoing other mate choice experiments and behaviors which are far more successful like going to shopping malls on Friday nights and things like that. All right, um, so it's not very complex. It's not very difficult to do, okay? Um, when I was finishing my PhD, I went through this in exact same process of science that I'm gonna go through right here. It's not hard to do, right? In fact, it's so easy to do. You've been doing it since you were two years old, three years old, okay? It all starts with a question as everything always does. Why are giraffe necks so long? Okay, why is she standing in the corner? reaching for that thing, right, every day, you know, things like this. Or in this case, my question is, why doesn't my flashlight work? Okay, that's a very good observation, right? Then we make a question out of there, the flashlight doesn't work. So we have the question, why does my flashlight not work? What is wrong with my flashlight? All perfectly good questions, right? Uh, we can come up with some hypotheses, some explanations that we can put on trial for that, can't we? For example, one. The bulb is dead. What's another one? Batteries. Speak. Uh, yes, the batteries might be dead. Two perfectly reasonable hypotheses. Okay. Let's say I have a flashlight. I pick it up, turn it on, or flip the switch anyway, and it doesn't come on. And I say, oh, the batteries are dead. Am I right? Could be. Do I know? Have I learned anything about the flashlight? No, I haven't. Right? That is a speculative statement. Okay. I still need to test that. That's a hypothesis to be tested, is that the batteries are dead. So we can do that. Just so you know, yes, I do. These have been, this has been the text associated with this slide for years because students always say the same thing. It's either the bulb is burnt out or the batteries are dead. Humans are predictable. We just tested that hypothesis too, right? They'll say the same thing that students have always said for the last three years, okay? Um, the hypothesis one, dead batteries. Hypothesis two, bulb burnt out. So we can make predictions from that. If the batteries are dead. If I change the batteries, the flashlight will work. So that's a perfectly wonderful test of this hypothesis, right? So I get some batteries that I know to be charged and functioning. I put them in the flashlight, put them, put the flashlight back together, flip the switch. No light. Okay. Um, I've just refuted that hypothesis. Okay. I have learned something. I've learned what it's not. Okay. It's not the batteries. Okay which is knowledge, you have learned something. Okay, uh, hypothesis two, the bulb is burnt out. I can test that hypothesis as well, right? I know I have batteries in there that, uh, that are charged and functioning. I can always swap out the light, put the flashlight back together, flip the switch, and aha! Let there be light, absolutely, right? I, I did not reject that hypothesis of the bulb burnt out. In fact, it seems to be supported. Have I learned anything? Yes. Absolutely, right? Have I learned something about every flashlight out there? No. no, I haven't, right? I've learned something about mine, though. Right? I went the other way here. I did not induce in this case. I deduced in this case. I took some information about flashlights that I had already known about how they function, and I used that to test hypotheses about these individual flashlights or this single individual flashlight. 
Okay, so whereas in inductive reasoning, we are making a lot of observations about something and expanding outward to the universe, here we're taking collective knowledge that we may already bring to it, okay, from a lot of individual cases, and we're making a specific statement about these. Instead of going from the specific to the general, here in this deductive hypothesis testing way, we're going from the general down to the specific. So there's a relationship between discovery science and hypothesis based science with respect to inductive and deductive reasoning, yes? If I put what is at the beginning of that statement, it would be a question that you probably should know the answer to for the exam, right? It's obvious, it's obvious. That's an excellent question for an exam, right? Do you think you can do that? Yes. Anybody else or just one? <laughs> you can tell me about that, can't you? Ah, sure you can, you got time. So the logic flowing from the general to the specific, if a hypothesis is correct, if a hypothesis is supportable, right, if it seems to be really what's going on, we can expect a particular outcome, okay? So predictions lie at the heart of this, right? You need to come up with a hypothesis, right, that yields predictions. If you can't make a prediction from your hypothesis, then you really have nowhere to go, which is ultimately what characterizes whether or not a question is one that you can actually treat using the scientific method. You can't answer everything in the universe using science, can you? There are some things that are, some questions that are outside of the realm of science, okay? Questions that are outside of the realm of science have one of two things wrong with them. They are either not testable, okay? Or it doesn't actually give you the ability to falsify it, okay? What's a good example? the classic example of the ultimate untestable hypothesis. Is there a God? See, students are predictable, right? Uh, is there a God? Um, how do you test that? Somebody? What predictions can you make? Bad things won't happen to good people, right? So, you know, it's, it's hard to come up with something adequate, right, to test that, okay? Which is why the Lord works in mysterious. mysterious ways, right? He works in mysterious ways because he's an untestable hypothesis. Yes? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so that's not to say that this kind of stuff is bad, right? I'm not trying to convince you that there is no God or anything. This is my legal disclaimer, right? I'm not trying to convince you that there is no God or anything like that. You just need to appreciate different sources of knowledge for what they are. There are two ways that you can know something, right? You can either have evidence for it we call those things science, right? Or you can say that you know something and have no evidence for it at all. We call those things beliefs, right? That is information that we take on faith, okay? Faith-based knowledge. I'm not saying one is better than another, but you should know what's behind what you think, right? Everybody believes things, everybody has faith in things, right? I have faith and believe that all people are inherently good, despite the overwhelming amount of evidence suggesting otherwise, okay? Watch the evening news. That's a good test of that hypothesis, right? Of, of whether or not people are inherently good, right? And it's been demonstrated to me time and again that people are in fact not inherently good, right? But if I'm going to go ahead and live on this earth for a while, I'd like to think that they are, right? So um, even accepting something in the face of evidence is the same as faith and belief. Um, so I'm not necessarily saying that one is good and one is bad, right? Just know what your system of knowledge actually is based on, okay? If you actually have evidence for something, okay, then you actually are undergoing this process of science, right? And you say you know things uh, based on that. That is when you stop believing things and you start actually thinking things. This is a semantic distinction here, right? If you have evidence for it, you can say that you think it. If you don't have evidence, you can't say that you think it. You have to say that you believe it. So who believes in things? Everybody, right? Once again, everybody raise your hand, right? If I ask the question, who currently has a parasite? Everybody raise your hand, right? When I usually ask these questions, everybody, right, should be raising their hands, right? Everybody does. I believe in things, you believe in things, everybody does, right? I just want you to start thinking about why you think and believe the things that you do. What do you know that's based on faith and what do you know that's based on science and evidence, okay? This being a biology class, we wanna make some statements about life on earth right, that are based on evidence, evidentiary things. And those are the kinds of information that is presented in your textbook, 
okay? Those kinds of statements about life, right? It's not, I mean, if you read open to chapter 27 or whatever in Campbell, it's not gonna say all people are inherently good, right? It's not, right? That's not something that lies within the realm of science, right? Um, all people undergo the process of mitosis as a basis for cellular division, right? That's science, right? We have evidence of that, undisputable evidence of that, okay? So um, belief versus thinking and, and, and knowledge and evidence, okay? That's what, the, that's what the distinction is. If you ever wanted to know whether or not there's an advantage of thinking scientifically over believing things, nothing ruins a good argument like somebody who knows what they're talking about, okay? Um, if somebody's telling you how great uh, the Washington Nationals are, right, um, and they believe they're gonna win the World Series this year, there's a host uh, of evidences that you could bring to bear on that question, right, that suggest otherwise. Definitively. <laughs> Definitively, okay. Okay. So we've talked about all of, these, uh, all of these now, right? What are these properties of living systems, right? Now I wanna spend a little bit of time introducing uh, the organization of living systems. Okay, um, living systems on Earth, anyway, have a lot of things in common, right, inherently. It's not just carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen, okay? Um, if you look at broadly at all the diversity of life on Earth, there seem to be rules that govern living systems anyway, okay? Um, not the least of which is that they tend to be organized in a hierarchy, okay? Anybody know what a hierarchy is? What is a hierarchy? Yeah, you have levels of, of organization and structure, right? And there's a very small level. And the level above, right, is consumes, right, uh, the structures below, okay? Um, the internested Russian dolls, right, is a classic example of the hierarchy, right? Um, the next level up higher in the hierarchy is constructed and composed of organisms of the level below, right? And there's a level above that, and there's a level above that, and there's another level above that, okay? So we can think about life on Earth and living systems as part of a hierarchy, um, it turns out there are several hierarchies uh, that describe living systems on Earth. We have the smallest level, things like individual atoms, molecular structures and things like that, up to the largest realm of this hierarchy, which is the biosphere, the Earth as a whole, okay? And there's a lot of things in between. We're smack dab in the middle of this hierarchy is you, okay? So if we wanna think about these hierarchies, as you and everything smaller, okay, lower in the hierarchy, we go from you down to the organ system, okay? For example, organ systems, speak. Digestive, digestive tract, digestive system, absolutely. Respiratory, respiratory cardiorespiratory, gas exchange, circulation, all that. What else? Nervous. Your nervous system, right? Brain, spinal cord, uh, peripheral neurons, you know, sensory afferent, efferent neurons, things like that. Give me one more. Reproductive system, absolutely, okay? Others include things like the skin is an organ system, okay? Uh, good stuff. So uh, we can then look at one of those organ systems, let's say circulatory system or something like that. Um, that organ system will be constructed of organs, like the heart. Uh, a little, there's an interaction there. What's another, yeah, the lungs. the red liquidy stuff, blood, okay, arteries, veins, okay, Va you know, vascular elements and things like that, okay? Um, each one of those organs is constructed of tissues, which is what we talk about on the second day of biology 102, right, the tissue level of development. We're talking about epithelial tissues, muscular tissues, uh, nervous tissue, those kinds of things, okay? Below the level of the tissue, right, we finally get to the level of the cell. Okay, that's a fundamental unit of life on Earth is the cell. Everything that is alive on the Earth today is made of at least one or more cells. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks when we talk about cell biology. Okay, below the level of the cell is the molecule of which you are mostly composed of four different ones. You got your fats, you got your carbohydrates, your proteins, and your nucleic acids. Okay, you're pretty much 99.999 out, right, from there, percent those four. Four things make you. Everything else, details, right? 
There are a lot of different proteins out there. There are a lot of different fats, right? But take just about any molecule out of your body and you can put it into one of those four categories, all right? Uh, below the level of the molecule, and these are just the complex ones. We can talk about water, we can talk about CO2, we can talk about nitrous oxide, things like other biological molecules that are currently you know, floating around in your system. Right? It's not just the big ones, we can talk about the small ones too. Um, below the level of the molecule, we have the atoms, right? We can talk about the periodic table, the 92 uh, that currently exist. Naturally on the earth, we can make some uh, more interesting and bigger, denser ones and particle accelerators and things like that. Um, you're pretty much made of the first 36, give or take, uh, elements in the periodic table. More of the lower ones than the higher ones. Like I said, you have some iron, right, and some copper in your body, and iodine, some, some kind of big, dense weirdos, right, but they're extraordinarily rare. We're talking about carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen. Below the level of the atom, we don't have to stop at the atom, do we? We can go down farther than that. Neutrons. Yes, yeah, neutrons, protons, electrons. We don't have to stop there, do we? We can go down to quarks, strings, gluons, leptons, hadrons, right? We can go down as low as we want until we get to vibrating strings of energy that are undescribable by modern physics and things like that, right? Um, so there's a lot of levels in this hierarchy below us, okay? Um, are you a collection of vibrating strings of energy? Yes, you are, right? And talking about an extreme case of reductionism, right? Where you've reduced you to trying to understand what you are as an individual by looking at vibrating energetic strings, all right? That exists in 11 dimensions uh, of space-time, so there it is. Um, but we can take yourself and go upward higher in the hierarchy as well, okay? We don't just have to go below. Um, despite what you've been told for about 2,000 years, you're not at the top of anything, okay? You're usually squarely in the middle. Uh, you are a multicellular individual. As you know, uh, that's where we started with the last time. You are a member of a population, okay? A population of people who are interbreeding with each other, okay? That what defines a population, members of the same species that are actively interbreeding with each other, that are part of the same gene pool, that are swapping genes, okay? You can be part of the same species. To be part of the same species, you can interbreed, okay? And leave viable offspring. To be part of the same population, you actually do interbreed and leave viable offspring, okay? Right now, because of air travel, okay, there's pretty much one population of, uh, of, of humans. If you, we talked about this 100 years ago, you would probably consider yourself a different population in Northern Virginia than Australian Aboriginals, okay? You could interbreed and leave viable offspring. You just don't, okay? You're pretty much genetically isolated from each other. Air travel has changed that, and now we're all pretty much all interbreeding with each other because of that. Um, there's a small, small, small risk of you interbreeding with an Australian Aboriginal, but it could actually happen, okay? You know, who knows what you're gonna do with your life and end up, oh, now I live in Tasmania, okay? You know, um, it could happen. So that's the difference between those two things. A species, you can, reproduce and leave viable offspring, but a population, you actually do, okay? So people in Northern Virginia, okay, are part of the same population. We actually are swapping genes with each other after we graduate and get a job, right? I just need to throw that out every once in a while just to remind you of the appropriate way to do things, right? Um, from a sociological point of view. Um, we are living together with other populations of other species, okay? And that collection we call a Community, okay? Who else is in this community with us? Dogs, cats, dogs, cats trees like oak trees, pine trees. What else? A lot. a lot of geese. There's a lot of geese out there, right? Uh, turtles in the pool out here, right? Cicadas, cicadas, uh, a lot of bugs, a lot of bugs, right? Um, bless you. Um, all these other things that are currently converting energy and getting carbon and interacting with their own populations that is doing it, occupying the same, same space time as we are, right? We're all part of the same community, okay, in Northern Virginia. All the stuff you see outside is the short answer to that question, okay? All the living stuff you see outside is part of the short answer to that. Um, there are parts of your community that are inside of you as well, aren't there? Yes? Like what? What's living inside of you right now? Think intestinally. I'm thinking about other species, like a bunch of bacteria. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Are things that are currently living in your GI tract part of your community? Absolutely. Living 
breathing, respiring, energy converting, carbon taking things that are enjoying what you had for lunch just as much as you did. Okay, so yes, your community is not just the things outside of you. The community is also the things inside of you. I'll do it again. Raise your hand if you currently have a parasite. Everybody raise your hand, right? Uh, these things living inside of you, taking your carbon and energy for their own nefarious ends so they can grow and have more babies, right? Have more bacteria. You're rife with them, don't worry about it. Oh, just so you know, they're also covering every surface that you're currently in contact with, okay? Don't tell me you didn't know that. Think about what you're sleeping at night on your mattress, okay? Uh, so bacteria can live on like anything, but viruses, they actually have to have like a... Um, with viruses, it depends, right? Um, uh, there are viruses all over, the, all over the place, right? What usually determines how long a virus can live outside of the body is the durability and the thickness of the, of the wall, the, the, the protein coat on the outside, right? Um, HIV has such a fragile coat on the outside of it. It can't live outside of the body for more than two minutes. Okay, um, cold viruses have a thick protein coat and they can live on the doorknob for days. Okay, so, well, the swine flu thing is kind of tricky. I, I was going to devote a little bit of time to swine flu a little bit later on. Um, it's easy to get, it's just not that dangerous. Right. Um, it's easy to get, but it, if, if you're already, you know, all the casualties with swine flu seem to be people who are already uh, elderly, sick with something else, very, very young. Right, uh, these kind of things. It doesn't really seem to be too deadly. It's just very easy to get. Yeah, yeah but it's a weirdo for several reasons, the swine flu is. It has seven genes at last count. Three of them are pig-derived. Two of them are found in birds, right? Um, this virus has gone through several different species already before it composited itself to become something new. Swine flu is weird. It's weird. It's not particularly deadly. Like if you got it, you'd feel bad for a couple of days and then you're all good, you know? Um, but if our virus is part of your community, uh, that's a kind of a, I don't know if I want to call that a trick question or not, but it's an interesting one because then you have to talk about whether viruses are actually alive. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you're going to say they're alive because they can undergo natural selection and they have nucleotides, right, DNA or RNA as a reproductive mechanism, then yeah, they are a part of your, uh, part of your ecosystem and part of your community. Um, if they're not and they really are just a, a cellular parasite, because they cannot, what can viruses not do? That's important. They can reproduce, right? What can they not do? Do they have Subway for lunch? Yeah, they, they can convert energy on their own, okay? Um, they have to co-opt your cellular machinery to do that. They can't copy their own DNA, right? They have to use your DNA replication mechanisms to do that, right? So they, they can reproduce, but they don't have a metabolism. So if you can't convert energy on your own, are you alive or not? Uh, you know, it gets, it gets tricky. We're back into philosophy again, because there's not an answer to that question. You know, it depends on what your definition of life is, which is different for, how many people do I have in this room? 29? So I have 29 distinctly different definitions of, of life, I think, which is why what is, what is life is not a useful question to ask, right? Um, if we say that having a, ma a metabolism and being able to convert energy is a requirement for a living system, then viruses are not, you know? So when you start looking at the community and comparing it to other communities that exist, for example, the east coast of North America, right, the temperate regions and things like that, several communities that can interact with each other, but usually on the edges of them, right, we'll call those an ecosystem, okay? North America is an ecosystem, which is very, very different from the Australian ecosystem. How many kangaroos have you seen in Northern Virginia lately, right, or America in general, outside of a zoo? Well, there's that one that got loose in Texas, but we're not gonna count that one, you know? Uh, uh, different ecosystems, okay? If you go look in Australia or other places like that that are far away, that are island communities like that, they'll have a very different set of things that are currently there, okay? Depending on how long they've been isolated, usually. Okay, so different ecosystems. And when you start looking at all of these ecosystems together, we finally get to the highest level of the Earth-based hierarchy called the biosphere. We can go higher than that, can't we? We can, well, we, we're jumping to the highest end, right? There are things in between, right? We can talk about the solar system. Do we interact with Mars? We put rovers on it. Absolutely, we interact with Mars. Mars rocks hit the Earth all the time. Okay. Um, are we under the gravitational influence of Mars? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we're interacting with things outside. Would the dinosaurs say that we're interacting with extrasolar objects? 
look at that big meteorite. It's coming right for us, right? Yeah, absolutely, right? And it does have, no pun intended, earth-shattering consequences when it does, okay? So the dinosaurs beg to differ with your statement, right? That we don't interact with, you know, things outside of the earth. We, ob we, we clearly do, okay? And they can change the course of biological history. Where would the mammals be if the dinosaurs didn't get whacked by that random meteorite? We'd be holding this class inside of a hollow log at night, and we'd all be really, really small, right? Um, so thankfully, they did, right? Or the mammals might never have taken off and, and become the dominant uh, life on Earth as they have. Like I said last time, everything kind of goes through life taking a turn, right? The dinosaurs had a turn, uh, and their turn came to an abrupt end, and now the mammals are taking the turn. Eventually, we might lose our, our place here and something else might take a turn. I was just having a conversation with somebody in my office uh, suite over there this morning about just this thing, right? If the mammals got whacked, who would take over? Bugs. Right? We talked about bugs. The problem with bugs is this. They're passive respirers, okay? They can't actively inhale and exhale. They're relying on diffusion to bring oxygen into their body, right? So there's a lot of bugs already out there, but they're never going to get really big. Okay, so when you talk about dominant, we're talking about things that are big that can really exert an influence on the earth. There are, I mean, you could say the bugs already dominate. Go outside on a summer day. Bugs are dominating the ecosystem already, right? Turn on your kitchen light at 2 o'clock in the morning and watch the cockroaches scatter. You know, bugs are already dominating. Uh, and they're consuming your resources and energy, right? Mosquitoes and things like that. What do you think would take over? So we started thinking about this. What's kind of smart? What already has an optic way of living their life, Okay relatively intelligent, um, might have the ability to get external or at least internal hard parts to support a larger, bio, bio, you know, a larger biological structure. What we came up with was the cephalopods, okay? Like uh, squid, octopus, things like that. That's really the only thing we could really imagine, right, that could really pull it off, okay? There is some cephalopods out there that have internal support, like a cuttlefish has an internal structure that it uses to bear a load, okay? They have nice big eyes that are far better than yours. They don't have blind spots and things like that. They have good eyes. They're really smart, right? They can manipulate their environment. They don't have opposable thumbs, right? But they got all those suckers, you know? And they can, they have eight, you make up for opposable thumbs by having eight arms and <laughs> things like that, right? So they can manipulate their environment. So we were just kind of waxing on in this conversation about if the humans and the mammals really got it, Okay, who would take over, right? And that's the most reasonable thing that we came up with. All right, there's also a hierarchy of similarity, okay, of structure and organization, okay? Not just hierarchy of scale of what you're constructed of, both below you and the levels above you, ecosystems and biospheres and things like that. Um, there's this, what we call a taxonomic hierarchy as well. And you've heard it before. Anytime you call something a genus or a species or a kingdom, right, you're using the hierarchy put in place by this man, Carl Linnaeus, who was a botanist living in the 1700s. When did Darwin publish his book? Anybody know off the top of their head? Roughly speaking. 18-something. 1859. Okay. Uh, long after Linnaeus was doing what he was doing. Okay. So Carl Linnaeus is going out there. He's naming things, and he's putting them into this hierarchy, right, called the Linnaean hierarchy, oddly enough, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, right? You've heard it, you've called something part of the kingdom before, you've called something a species before. Well, there's a lot of things in between, okay? There were, when Linnaeus constructed this hierarchy, seven levels of it, now there are eight. We have a level above the kingdom. Anybody know what it is? Domain. It's the domain, absolutely right. How many domains are there? Three. Look at you. Okay, three domains. You know what they are? Um, I think it's Archaea. The Archaeans, the, the Eukaryotes, and the Prokaryote. That's my girl. All right, uh, so Carl Linnaeus is not thinking about evolutionary history, okay? He's not answering questions about how organisms are related to each other, right? Uh, Darwin, when he wrote his book, Origin of Species, and published it, there's one figure in that book, and it's in the very end. Anybody know what it is? It's got no names on it. It's just a simple branching diagram, right? Um, the last thing that he wanted to do is take humans and chimpanzees and put them next to each other on this branching diagram. If he would have done that, 
the book would never have been published, right? Uh, so he had to make some guarded statements about maybe things are related to each other, right? Earlier today I heard uh, that chimpanzees have 99% of the same At genes. least, at least. As humans? Yeah. But 30,000 genes are still different. Yeah. And those are the big ones that make us look so different. Yeah, like why don't I have hair? And uh, what's up with my hips? You know, um, and what's this big thing in my head all about, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so Carl Linnaeus is coming up with this hierarchy, and his Carl Linnaeus's hierarchy has nothing to do with evolutionary history, right? It doesn't explicitly tell you who is related to who. It tells you who is structured most similarly to who. Sometimes the two things are the same, okay? A lot of times they're not, okay? So when I'm going to be giving you this first exam in a couple of weeks, I'm going to tell you to do something like compare Linnaeus's hierarchy um, to a hierarchy that is inferred by Charles Darwin. Because when Charles Darwin is talking about his branching diagrams, he's talking about a hierarchy of two, right? But he's talking about a hierarchy of relatedness. Okay, so Linnaeus is talking about a hierarchy of similarity. Darwin is talking about a hierarchy of relatedness based on evolutionary descent. Okay, and sometimes the two things interact with each other and give you a similar result. Sometimes they don't. Okay, so Carl Linnaeus is not doing evolutionary history. He's just naming things. He's created a system of hierarchically organized shoeboxes. He's cataloging as much diversity of life on Earth as he can, and he's putting all of the living organisms into some of these shoeboxes. Okay, um, these great apes look a lot like each other, so we're going to call them all primates. Okay, um, versus all of these things out here that have six legs and a hard skeleton, so we're going to call them insects. Okay, versus all these squishy things that are going to take over after the mammals bite it, we're going to call those cephalopods, right? So, you know, he's going through this, he's not talking about evolutionary history, he's really just talking about structural similarity, okay? And his goal was to organize all of nature, okay? In 1707 to 1778, how much diversity do you think there is in la on Earth? How many species? Thousand, maybe? A task that you could do, you could achieve, right? Uh, when Linnaeus started this, he's thinking, ah, so I sent some people off to the new world, they come back with a collection of stuff and we're all good, right? Um, and by the time, to his credit, by the time he died, he did realize that this was an insurmountable task that he had bitten off, that actually the true number is up in the millions somewhere, possibly a double digit millions number, and not just uh, a thousand things that we can sort out and we're all good. Right, so by the time he died, he did actually figure out that this was, if not a fool's errand, one that he's not gonna see the end of before he perishes, okay? So this is his hierarchy, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Um, when I learned this, when I was an undergraduate, I learned it using a delightful mnemonic device, which by all rights and admittedly is rather stupid, right? Kangaroos play checkers on fuzzy green squares, yes? So if you'd like to develop some sort of a mnemonic device of your own, that's fine, right? Or if you want to, you can just learn kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, okay? So a genus is constructed of several species. A family is constructed of several genera. I was gonna say if anybody was gonna say genuses, genera, okay? Um, an order is composed of several families. Okay, so it's a good hierarchy, just like the structural hierarchy, but this is a hierarchy of similarity that Carl Linnaeus developed. Nobody write down kangaroos play checkers on fuzzy green squares because it's stupid and you have bigger fish to fry than what is my mnemonic device that your teacher used in high school to memorize this. Come up with your own, goodness sakes. Did anybody do this? In, did anybody go to Fairfax High Schools? Um, a lot of times I will ask people what their mnemonic device was. To, to learn this, and they all come up with a lot of times the same answer, and a lot of them said that they learned a specific mnemonic device in Fairfax County High Schools about King Philip doing yeah. something. Yeah, okay. yeah. All right. Yeah, something, something like that. So evidently there's a, there's a Fairfax County Board of Education approved mnemonic device for learning Linan hierarchy. I don't know what it is. I, think, I say be creative and come up with your own, which I did once. As an extra credit assignment, I had everybody come up with a, with a mnemonic device to learn this. And I learned a lot about my students by doing that, right? <laughs> they would say things about their best friend's sister that cannot be repeated in class and, and things like that. It was a psychological exercise more than anything else. It was very, I didn't do it since. But you have a place in this hierarchy as well, okay? So Carl Linnaeus placed humans here, okay? You are of the species sapiens, okay? Your genus is homo. 
you are a homo sapiens. You are of the family hominidae. What does it mean to be a genus homo or a family hominidae? What do you do that makes you homo? What is this? It's a tool. Okay, we're tool users. What's helpful for using a tool is this thing, which is what makes us a, this makes us a primate, actually, right? And this thing up here, which makes us think about things. That was makes us uh, a sapien, right? We're a thinking tool user is what our name is, okay? Uh, we are a primate, like I said, so we're talking about you know, this. Oh, consequently, um, for the longest time, humans were the only genus in, in the hominidae. Okay, that is now, in a lot of people's mind, changed to include the orangutans, chimpanzees, and gorillas are also hominid, hominids as well. For the longest time, right, we were the only genus, right, of our family. Why were we constructed that way to be the only genus of our family? If you look at other. Uh, other families, right? Um, you can have, there can be two species within the same genus, right? That are more different from each other than we are from the, the gorillas and the chimpanzees. So why do we get our own family? Because we're arrogant, all right? Uh, and we couldn't possibly be that close to the chimpanzees and the lowly gorilla, right? So for the longest time, we were part of the same family as well. And they were of the family Pongidae, the orangutans were, for example. A lot of those uh, great apes have been put into the Hemenidae as well. Right, and right now, currently, the hominidae is defined as being 97% genetically similar to a human. Okay, so chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, bonobos, uh, things like that. Right, not too many of us, but if you look at a baby orangutan, it looks a lot like a baby human, like a lot like a baby human. Okay, um, and with that in mind, I'll let you go. I'll see you in 15 minutes over at the lab. Um, because I'd like to keep lecture, lecture, and lab, lab, I will say between now and Monday, if you would please read chapters one and two in your textbook. I would say have a good day, but I'll see you in 15 minutes anyway. <laughs>